I used to say this podcast was my opportunity to find out the things I know nothing about, but this episode is special, perhaps the epitome uh, of not knowing what I'm talking about. I've been banging on in recent columns for Business Day and the Sunday Times about the inequities, as I see them, of new ANC industrial policy, particularly the part called localization. It basically means import substitution, which sounds like a really good idea until you test it. Imagine if we could make everything we need here, at home, ourselves. That's the proposition. President Cyril Ramaphosa wants a thousand products localized in five years' time. Is that realistic? Is it even desirable? I certainly am not sure, because the first evidence of localization is already starting to emerge. Not that we're making anything new. Rather, we've creating an array of import tariffs and duties designed to make imports more expensive and so make them uncompetitive with local companies, which are already uncompetitive, so that the local companies can compete without having to do better or to you know, make better products for less money. Steel is one glaring case, but there are others across a swathe of manufacturing, and we'll get to them in a minute. Fortunately, Business Unity South Africa and Business Leadership South Africa have just combined to produce a report on the possibilities and perhaps limitations of localization. It is a dense 85 pages long, and as it was released just, well, 24 hours before this podcast, I haven't been able to read it all. So I'm very lucky to have with me today Peter Attard Montalto, the super smart lead researcher on this report. He's a partner in Intellidex, the increasingly influential consultancy founded by Stuart Theobald in the UK a few years ago. Intellidex is about as well connected across all tiers of our economy as you could care to imagine. And it interviewed around 150 companies as part of the research here for this report. Peter, welcome. And as far as I can tell, your broad conclusion is that business broadly supports localization, but also broadly doesn't believe the government knows how to do it. Have I got that right? Exactly. I think the really interesting thing to come out of the report was the fact that businesses want to, if they can, uh, choose a local product. Uh, If it's available with the quality the right price, the capacity required uh, to fulfill people's supply chain needs, uh, then they would rather a local product. I think that's perfectly understandable. Uh, I think localization uh, as an aim um, based off of, you know, some degree of patriotism, etc., is is okay. The problem is when you start doing it with the wrong constraints uh, in place uh, in the economy in general, uh, when the right conditions are not in place for it to happen sustainably, Uh, And when you upset this balance between price, quality and capacity, uh, and that also came out strongly from the report. So people are in businesses are in favor of of localization, but under the right conditions. And that's the key thing to stress. And and the right conditions would be would look like what I mean, we what we seem to be doing. And I'm just, you know, just reading multiple sort of presentations from the government to parliament and regional governments over the past year where they talk about industrial strategy, it is all founded on the basis of protecting what we already have 
rather than making what we already have more competitive and focusing it on the export market rather than on a relatively small and not all that wealthy domestic market. We just seem, that, I guess my question is, is, are your clients, BUSA and BLSA, are they being taken for a ride here? I mean, helping to create, to create a sort of a siege economy and when, when what's required is just the opposite. So there's a much bigger question here, which you're alluding to around what current industrial policy is. And I think the challenge of this debate really is the fact that government, DTIC, can show successes. They can count a certain number of new black industrialists that come out, as they have been doing in some lovely glossy brochures uh, in the last two weeks, uh, for instance. But the the problem we have here is scale, yeah. ultimately. You know, these DTIC moves can work at a granular level and have individual examples, but they're sort of the exceptions that prove the rule, right? We should be having so many black industrialists we can't count them, right? You know, localization in the complex yeah. economy uh, is not possible fundamentally top down uh, because of the complexity of supply chains, um, because of an attempt, you know, to mastermind exactly what goods you will get from where, what goods you're getting from SMMEs, et cetera, uh, what rules you can designate, et cetera, uh, even with perfect information would still not make sense. And a thing that came out strongly from the report is that there is deep skepticism amongst the businesses surveyed that DTIC understands uh, capacity well enough, uh, understands the scope uh, for localization over any sort of meaningful timeframe. Uh, and that's something that came out strongly in the quantitative section of the report as well, uh, is that there's huge disparity between sectors and top-down targets really make very little sense. There are some sectors that can grow pretty fast, that have a degree of capacity that can localize faster, such as food and beverages, for instance, but others, and pretty big ones, like electronic equipment sectors, uh, where it's going to be hugely challenging, where you have much more complex supply chains. And again, I think the issue around sort of, you know, exceptions that prove the rule is really around PPE, right? These are relatively simple products where you have existing machinery you have existing workers who are producing similar things um, already, uh, and you can very quickly transfer um, uh, capacity, et cetera, uh, to, some, to something else. Uh, that is not the same, for instance, as, as you know, highly complex uh, supply chains around, say, uh, photovoltaic uh, cells, for instance, or, or the complex uh, inputs to, uh, to infrastructure, to mining equipment, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's why we need to be very careful here to uh, to understand that the complexity of the economic system. And I think this is always a challenge, right, in, in, in debates with government and in debates over industrial policy, is if you like those on the business side, notionally in, in, in many quotation marks, uh, struggle because we understand in many ways, right, the complexity of the economic system. Whereas I think there is a pretense from the other side often that the economic system is describable, it's countable, um, you know, it's 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 passable into different boxes. And that comes up again and again, uh, whether it's visas and the key skills report where you think you can sort of align you know, different skills across different areas, uh, infrastructure. Now, private sector investment coming soon where the uh, IIO and the presidency is going to try and map and, you know, and, and, and coordinate private sector investment. Uh, and I think that when you take a massive step back is the sort of foundational issue here. It's so interesting to hear you put into English what, I'm, uh, what I've been thinking, you know, because there's this compulsion to, as you say, describe the whole um, industrial world. And I've got a presentation um, in front of me now that the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition gave to the 
Western Cape Standing Committee on Finance in May last year. And it goes on, it says the beneficiation, beneficiation of South Africa's raw materials is a major thrust of industrial policy. Linkages can be strengthened by developing manufacturing capabilities throughout the steel supply chain. Scope for development within the steel supply chain can be found between mining, construction, infrastructure, automotive, packaging, and capital equipment. Uh, that just terrifies me. So I think the, the issue there is that the private sector, you know, where it can, uh, wants to do more beneficiation onshore, right? The question is, do you have the skills? Do you have the cost competitiveness? Uh, and do you ultimately link into a global supply chain to make these things happen? Uh, and that's really the, the problem and, and, the, and the problem with the autarky model, which is the closed economy model fundamentally, is it simply doesn't work in a, in a global economy where you have, you're trying to invite international investors in, right, who have their own supply chains, who do want to use local content and do want to see local content that's competitive and of the right quality. Um, but they're not going to, you know, go beyond beyond that in terms of, you know, hiking prices, uh, you know, passing prices on to consumers, etc. Uh, and again, I think that's the, the point in all this. One can construct a system with whatever local content you like. But if you're stretching it beyond the, the capacity, uh, the quality and the sort of existing clearing price in the system, there's going to be fallout. Right. And that's what we're going to see, I think, in a very interesting way live now uh, in the sort of two years ahead uh, around the risk mitigation uh, procurement uh, process and the uh, renewable energy uh, IPP program uh, as well, where we are really stretching the limits most likely there uh, beyond what capacity is actually available on shore. The PPE example uh, yesterday, when I listened to your presentation, was very interesting because we might now will be able to make rubber gloves and and uh, and you know uh, um, coats to to put around people and masks and this kind of thing. But one of the great successes, Trump is one of the great successes of. Uh, our initial response to the coronavirus was the creation of this um, uh, of, of a ventilator, of a, of a non-invasive ventilator, of which um, I think eventually twenty thousand were made, um, uh, and um, about ten thousand used, and the other ten thousand are still apparently in a warehouse somewhere, and are not being used because we don't we haven't exported them or marketed them. In any way, we can't be keeping them because we don't. There's no there's, there's no market left here for the for them. And I just wondered to what extent that describes one of the problems that we face in South Africa. Because unless you unless you can export, our market is too small to 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 encourage the development of a reindustrialized, um, vibrant manufacturing economy. So this is where I think the localization and general industrial policy is, is going to be very interesting to watch. And we saw Minister Patel in Parliament this morning laying out the uh, program uh, for the, the year ahead for, for DTIC and a lot of talk of uh, AFCFTA uh, fitting into the rest of the continent, etc. And a key ask from FDI investors, given this point that you make around the, the size of the South African economy, which is big-ish, but not quite big enough, Right. Uh, the investors are looking for linkages. They're looking for uh, broader demand uh, throughout the entire continent. And South Africa is a base uh, for, for production uh, into that. Um, this this issue is, is going to become very knotty, I think, and where a lot of the contradictions uh, are going to come out. For instance, how do you work BE? How do you work uh, localization um, when ultimately the whole point in a free trade agreement is that you're exchanging comparative advantage? 
you are specializing in things. You are, uh, you know, uh, it, this is sort of old school economics, but, you know, it's, it's, it's old school economics because it's fundamentally how it works. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're finding an equilibrium that's more efficient for the entire continent and, and starting to put in place blockages, um, those sorts of things, starting to uh, throw extra rules into it. It seems to fly very much against the, the whole point. Uh, of this, you know, remember in the EU case, for instance, uh, there are very uh, strict rules against uh, local content and, and those sorts of issues. Uh, in uh, the other free trade packs, uh, like the uh, the Asian one, uh, even the renegotiated um, uh, North America free trade agreement, uh, there is always safeguards against these kinds of blockages. Actually, and I think one really has to question what the government's view is of, of the point of AFCFTA. Um, when one also is simultaneously throwing up these kinds of contradictions. Yeah. One of the other things that came up when you were talking yesterday, when you were presenting, um, was um, was recent evidence of the a complete failure of localization uh, built around in, an industrial policy at the time, which was to encourage the growth of a renewable energy industry in South Africa, and of course, as we know, um, the, it's a it's a it's a measure of the importance of of uh, continuity and commitment in government policy. But a lot of people did come to this country and start manufacturing electric photoelectric voltaic um, panels and and wind turbines, and that that capacity, uh, as the government failed to order more uh, renewable energy capacity. That manufacturing capacity disappeared with it as well. I think there's one factory left in the country, as far as I know, capable of manufacturing a solar panel. So the interesting thing about the REAP program was how it basically did successfully, for a short time, manage to get localization to happen. And it's because you had demand pipeline certainty. We knew these rounds were coming up. Uh, we knew how they, exactly how they worked, the regularity of them. They were commodified, basically. Uh, but then the sudden stop in 2014 uh, after bid window four then caused basically all this to close. Now, the, the, the real issue going forward is can you shock the system back to life? Uh, and how do you do that versus quite aggressive timelines for the next coming couple of bid windows? We have 2.6 gigawatts. Uh, out for bid window five now. In the end of the year, we're going to have another 2.6 gigawatts. And then until the start of next year, uh, a remaining 1.8 gigawatts coming of, of, of PV and, and, and wind. Uh, and all this is happening basically too fast versus the ability and talking. I've talked to quite a number of people in the in the industry about this, the, the likely ability to, to set up new plants, uh, etc. Uh, so as you say, there is some capacity, um, but, the, uh, but the, the ability for that existing capacity um, really is, is is really in question. And, and that leads to some very complicated questions about the, what the IPP office does if people can't uh, deliver on local prom, uh, local content promises. Technically, uh, under the rules, they should actually cancel those bids. Um, and this is the problem when you get into the, the, the knotty uh, sort of issues on this. But the, the real lesson from the past is demand certainty, policy certainty uh, is incredibly important. Um, but this also comes back to the sort of complexity of the economy point as well. Uh, one of the reasons to want a much more liberalized uh, economic system uh, around energy procurement, uh, the so-called licensing threshold to be raised from uh, one megawatt to uh, to 50 megawatts, uh, is actually to create this huge amount of demand 
um, which uh, um, has been shown and research published by Grace Dean showing that you, know, you could get very easily, very quickly in five years, five gigawatts uh, of, of that kind of demand into PV, uh, into wind from, from corporates. You, you need a, a diversified base of demand as well to create the, uh, the sustainability of localization and industrialization. Uh, that can happen onshore uh, around those sorts of uh, initiatives. But you, clearly, what you what you what you need before anybody puts up a factory in Quebecha or East London or Johannesburg is is reasonable certainty that there is going to be a uh, a long line of demand for whatever it is that you're making. I mean, you know what we're trying to sell at the moment actually doesn't exist. We're selling. Trying to sell an internal market which starts with South Africa, but with which expands to the African free trade, African continental free trade area, and that is very, very much in its infancy. And I just wonder whether we're not getting ahead of ourselves by imposing all these duties to protect really, really weak companies like AMSA, uh, the steel company, um, before developing markets where we can sell all this localized, pro you know, produce too. So the the focus on sort of industrial and infrastructure in particular input goods is is very very interesting because it's it's a key area where you can get quite problematic price multiplicative effects through supply chains if you uh, start uh, making requirements on on very basic goods like uh, cement and steel um, you start putting in place tariffs um, to to shift behaviours uh, and shift uh, demand uh, onshore. Uh, one can suddenly get quite spiraling costs uh, on the uh, on the back end, on the on the on the end, particularly for governments in terms of funding these things, uh, and also in terms of bankability. And let's not forget that uh, you know there's a big problem uh, around getting funding for a lot of infrastructure because a lot, often the economics uh, simply doesn't doesn't add up, uh, or the, the sustainability of these these programs. Uh, and and I think it's kind of back to what what is the most important thing here? Say talking about infrastructure, it's having infrastructure fastest at cheapest costs rolled out across the economy, particularly in rural areas and these marginal cases where maybe the economics is challenging enough as it is. Uh, and we need to focus on the outputs, ultimately. Um, you know, and I think that that's ultimately the way that you can grow a sustainable uh, onshore you know, uh, industry around cement, around steel, et cetera, is, uh, is kickstarting the system first. And, and there is somewhat of a chicken and egg problem, particularly, I think, on the, on the steel side, um, where we're sort of captured at the moment by uh, historic uh, incumbents, uh, as you as you allude to, um, rather than uh, simply moving much faster. I mean, one of the biggest uh, complaints uh, that came up, uh, as you remember, we also did a lot of work around infrastructure for, for business leadership South Africa, report out uh, six weeks ago or so now on that. One of the biggest complaints came up there was particularly on capacity uh, around, uh, around steel. You know, if uh, local steel capacity was able to produce what everyone needed at the right quality, you know, at the right price, then no one would be complaining. It was a key complaint uh, coming up, holding back uh, a lot of uh, um, projects for, for business. And, and I think because there's a lot of deep problems in the construction sector, but this is uh, adding to it at the margin as well. You, you, looked, at, um, you, not, you looked at various sectors which, um, where you, and you, you decided that some would be, you know, easier to localize than others. What what is what is the single sort of what are the top three most easily in your view localizable products? What can we reasonably because the target is twenty to substitute twenty percent of imports in the next five years? Um, where what, what are the three products where you could most easily get to that number? So 
we did a quantitative study ultimately, which is just looking at a very high level. There's a lot of work going on and, sh and should be more going on at a sectoral level, uh, really uh, going into the, the sort of details of, of how you un unlock this. Uh, but the, the targets that is being sort of discussed in, in NEDLAC between uh, government and, and business is this idea, as you say, of 20%. So we wanted a sort of top-down macro, macro view on which sectors have the existing capacity, uh, excess capacity, uh, which have seen historic growth rates. Let's not forget the manufacturing sector really has struggled for the last decade uh, to get sort of meaningful positive growth. And albeit there's a lot of disparity between sectors. Uh, and when you combine the two together, we can look at, you know, where there is more likely to be an ability to uh, hit these kind of targets uh, and, and, and not. So it's, it's, slight, it's not quite what is easiest to localize, but more where you can hit the targets, albeit the two are, uh, are, are probably correlated. But we came up basically um, with uh, things like uh, food and beverage sector, which is obviously a relatively simple uh, uh, sector in terms of supply chains. Uh, we came up uh, with um, uh, basically uh, ceramics and paper and wood industries, uh, which again are relatively simple supply chains. Interestingly, the motor industry, which is a challenging one in some sense, so quantitatively it looks easier, but we should remember we're in a very tight fiscal situation. This is a sector that's reliant on uh, on subsidies to get to, to where it's uh, got to. Uh, and then basic iron and steel, but uh, there was quite a, there were some mixed uh, views on uh, on that front, uh, given as you say uh, before uh, the imposition now of tariffs, etc. Uh, but basically, what's coming up is is if we ignore the motor uh, side for now, is is ones that have relatively simple supply chains. I suppose that is really speaking back to what we said before about about simple supply chains and, and PPE. One of the things that you that you said would be difficult to localize. At, certainly at that pace, um, will have struck the wrong chord at the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. Um, and that's textiles, because obviously uh, Minister Ibrahim Patel comes out of the textile trade or out of the textile industry uh, and has gone out of his way to protect the local industry to the almost to the detriment of our immediate neighbors as well. Um, what's the problem with textiles? What's so hard about localizing textiles? So there it was less, again, this is the, the sort of distinction between what's easy to localize versus the sort of targets. Uh, the, the real problem there was an, an issue of capacity, existing onshore capacity, uh, and also the size of the sector uh, and, and the, need to, uh, um, uh, the need to be able to, uh, to fill that capacity uh, and the existing sort of growth rates in the, in the sector. So it's more around coming from a pretty low base. Um, so again, we... And again, this is part of the issue of sort of timing and targets. Can you construct, you know, thinking out two decades or so, a, a vibrant local textile industry with demand? Maybe, but the, what we're talking talk about here is a much more aggressive shift over much shorter timeframes, and that's particularly why we uh, came up uh, more pessimistic on on, on the sort of target-based approach uh, for the textile industry as a whole. Uh, there has been, again, individual examples of, of localization going on um, around, particularly some of the sort of uh, faster market fashion that's gone on, um, where some of the supermarkets have invested uh, on short. But, but we're talking here about the entire sector um, and, and the breadth of the sector. So one of the, one of the things that you did was to was to look at, you know, where where has this worked before in the world? If you if you talk if you look at government agencies, they have two or three models. They look at China, Japan, and South Korea, um, countries that have you know industrialized their way into 
um, the modern world and are now you know now have considerable clout. But that was obviously many decades ago. Um, during you know long before the fourth or whatever industrial revolution it is that we happen to be in now, um, we seem we're in danger of trying to reinvent the wheel in many cases. I, I worry um, by simply manufacturing or re relying so much on manufacturing uh, to create jobs because that ultimately is what we're trying to do. Because manufacturing itself is changing, and manufacturing just doesn't create the jobs that it used to. So when we did our literature review in the study, I mean, I think the, the problem and my scepticism always around literature reviews is you can you can kind of choose whatever you want, right? And and as you say, government has its own examples. Yeah. What we wanted to show, though, was an example uh, of where going too fast and too aggressive particularly uh, has negative impacts on the infrastructure side. And that's really what came up around Brazil uh, and uh, and pushing too, yeah. too hard around their equivalent, not quite comparable, but their equivalent of, of designation. Uh, as, as exists in South Africa for those sorts of goods. What happened? What happened to the in the in the case of Brazil, Peter? Well, basically, they had a crunch uh, around uh, infrastructure investments as a result of this, and the inability to source uh, local goods, uh, rapidly rising prices, etc., uh, which ultimately derailed the uh, the program, and they had to uh, about face uh, on it uh, after a period of time. But uh, it's 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 uh, you know I think a, a salient lesson that we we go into uh, in the in the report. Um, but then we sort of wanted to look at, you know, where this can work and, and particularly the sustainability point. And, and this is where uh, Vietnam and the United States are very interesting. Vietnam uh, is export orientation um, and, and, you know, really having a view which was pushed down from Trump top down, uh, but very strongly that, you know, ultimately you get quality and, and, and price uh, of, of domestic industries by, by opening up them up to competition. Uh, and, and supporting them through that uh, uh, through that process to uh, into international markets. And I think that's really an important lesson for for South Africa. You know, we to get the how else are you going to get the quality and, and price and capacity onshore uh, in a domestic market without without introducing uh, the demand lever. Um, and this is where again the the AFCFTA point I think is particularly interesting that we discussed earlier. Uh, and then the United States, which I think was all about productivity ultimately, and and uh, the sort of hunt for sustainable localization through looking at, at productivity of sectors, uh, investments in the government can do in research and development, for instance, uh, and and the uh, the downsides of trying to uh, shelter industries from from improvements in in productivity, um, and some compare interesting comparisons there between administrations. One of the important points you made about the about the uh, American example was that they played to the Strengths and our strengths, unfortunately, are also our greatest areas of uh, uh, struggle, both in, in mining and in agriculture. We are miners and farmers in South Africa. They are—that's what we do best. Um, but you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of fighting about who owns the resources and 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 who should own them and how 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 that might be brought to be or brought about. Um, sh surely we get really nowhere until we sort out um, and bring some sort of combined um, effort uh, to bear on mining and farming because we are really good at that. So I think that's a, an interesting question of, of what South Africa is actually good at. It's much broader than just this, but you have to base some kind of industrial policy around. And it comes up every year at the investment summits. Um, and I think it's going to be very important to watch in DTIC's agenda in the year ahead 
uh, is invest foreign FDI investors always ask me every year at the investment conferences, what is South Africa actually selling, right? What are you good at? And I basically can't answer it from the perspective of, of government or what government thinks. And, you know, we have we had IPAP in the past and lists and lists of different sectors and subsectors. And I think that's really where, where DTIC needs to do a lot of work is to actually define uh, solidly what, what the country is good at. And if you look, for instance, you mentioned sort of agriculture, uh, if you look at what's done really, really well, actually, what's really actually driven a lot of the volume change in trade, net trade in the past year through the crisis is actually agriculture and agricultural exports, uh, which has been done off its own bat with with, with very little uh, government support in reality. Um, and, and I think it's actually a very interesting and good good success case. Uh, it's labor intensive, et cetera. It, it ticks many of the uh, of of the right boxes, and and I think I think having a uh, having a line having a, a a view on that from from government and a, a firmer view is going to be very important to watch in the in the coming year. Well, isn't it interesting? I mean, somebody I remember when it, it was reported a couple of months ago that South Africa had now become the world's second biggest exporter of citrus, and um, I tweeted. I remember putting it on my Twitter account. Isn't that fantastic? How well we've done. Um, and somebody from the DTIC answered to the fact that, yes, they said, um, we've been giving a lot of assistance to the citrus farmers. And you make the obvious point that actually they haven't. Um, and that the citrus farmers have managed to do that on their own. And I just wonder to what extent, uh, perhaps we, uh, as a closing question, to what extent we should be um, using some of the passion and energy we, we, we are putting into uh, you know, closing off uh, avenues for imports into our country, into opening up avenues for us to export to foreign countries. Are our embassies, is our diplomatic service in any way capable of selling, um, you know, ice to Eskimos? I mean, could we, for instance, Aust uh, Australian wines have been banned from China. To what extent, you know, were we able, I think we're too late, the Chileans have already climbed into that market in a big way. But, you know, there's a problem between Australia and China. We could have taken advantage of it with wine. Uh, we've done it with coal. To what extent is our diplomatic service able to help us open new markets um, and, you know, and, and give exports a real kick? So this is a really interesting question and comes back to the, the basis of all this is, is government does have a role, right? But it is a role of enabling, not ultimately coordinating. Uh, okay. And it's about providing the foundations, uh, really. And that's particularly what you mentioned around around export and, and trade diplomacy, et cetera, uh, which you know, the UK has been doing incredibly strongly um, you know, through and even, even before the, uh, the Brexit uh, period. Uh, which a lot of countries are, are very good at doing very aggressively. And South Africa just doesn't do this. And for all the talk of Invest SA um, and these sorts of things uh, coming out of DTIC, there really is extremely limited visibility, um, actually. Uh, a lot of the heavy lifting, for instance, between South Africa and the EU and the UK is actually done much more, I think, uh, say getting exports from South Africa. It's actually done a lot more by connections that come from the EU and the UK side and their trade missions, etc. Uh, and and I, I think this is one and this is one of the key recommendations from the report. Government needs to understand that it 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 has roles already that is not adequately filling in these sorts of things. It's the same on localization, 
Uh, you know, government needs to be out there in trade missions looking for things like original equipment manufacturing, uh, how you import technology and productivity through helping them come on shore and license, how you get them to connect into the FCTA, all this kind of thing. There, there is def a definite role that needs to be performed by government. And, and that's really what we're watching for. And I think is, is how you build ultimately uh, sustainable uh, localization and sustainable uh, industrial policy. Peter Attard Mantalto, thank you very, very much for joining us to, or me today. I really um, love talking to you. You, you always end up educating me, um, and it's nice to share you uh, for these few minutes with um, the listeners to Podcasts on the Edge, which is growing by the day. So thanks a lot, Peter, and we'll see you again soon, I hope. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. You can find the report that uh, Peter Attard Montalto did on the websites of both Business Unity South Africa and Business Leadership South Africa. It's really, really seriously interesting reading, and I do suggest if you're interested in what's going to happen, what's unfolding in our economy, that you uh, try to keep track of the kinds of debates people are having. And I, I hope you found this useful. I'll be back next week with uh, another topic with another very interesting guest. Please listen in. If you've got comments or criticisms about the show, let's hear about them. Let's make it better. And thank you for joining me.